good to see you at the five o'clock service. Thank you, David, for the January series. Really appreciated it. Let's give him encouragement. Appreciated that, David. And we are starting a new series today at the 2.30 service and also the 5 o'clock service. I mentioned at the 2.30 service, which I did last month because I had the opportunity to do it as David was doing the 5 o'clock on worship, that in the afternoon services and the evening services, we're actually following a two-year preaching program. And what that means is that we are looking, and we said to ourselves, if we were going to give you a diet of Bible teaching and ministry over a period of two years, what sort of topics would we want you to know? And we looked at a number of headings. We looked at doctrine or teaching. We thought to ourselves, what teaching would we want you to get? What great doctrines of Scripture would we want you to have over that period of two years? We looked at that. We also uh, looked at um, virtues. What Christian virtues would we want you to, to have in your life? Love, joy, faithfulness, honor. What sort of Christian would we like you to be? We're going to minister on some of those. So great doctrines, great virtues. And then finally, also practices. What sort of practices would we like to see strongly in your life? Practices of giving and practices of praying and practices of doing uh, the things that Christians should be doing in society. So these three things, doctrines, virtues, and practices, and we're mixing, mixing them up. So um, David did his special teaching on worship during the last month, but in the 2.30 service, we were looking at the doctrine as, as of God as our creator. If you want to understand God, you can put two headings under which everything you need to know about God comes. God as creator and God as redeemer. Most of us Bible believers know God as redeemer, savior, healer. We focus on that. We preach on that. But not many of us have a true understanding of God as creator. Well, we know God created the world, but what does that mean on a daily basis? We were looking at that at the 2.30 service. And out of the knowledge of God as creator, but remember, God is not the creator who created the universe like a watchmaker might create a watch, create the watch, wind it up, put it down, and step back. That is what we call deism, and that is not what God does. He doesn't just step back from his universe. He is creator, but he is also sustainer. So as we'll see today, everything that happens in his creation is sustained on a moment-by-moment basis by the power of God. So when you understand God as creator, you then, the next step is to know him as, as provider and carer. And at the 2.30 service, Conley uh, spoke at the 2.30 service very powerfully on the fact that God cares, and that's the topic at 2.30 for this month, God cares, that God cares for everybody and everything. That was his topic. And at the five o'clock service, we are following on from the theme of creator, moving into God, the providence of God. The providence of God, which I'm going to explain to you in a few moments. Next month, we will be moving in the 2.30 and 5 o'clock service into prayer. The 2.30, we'll be looking at um, prayer that gets results. Once you know God cares for you, it strengthens your prayer. At the 5 o'clock service, similar theme, we'll be looking at the priesthood of all believers. Jesus the high priest and what it means for us to be priests in this world. We represent God to man and we represent men to God or, or humankind to God in prayer. That's 
where we're, we're going in this. And R.T. Kendall is with us. He'll be at the 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock service next Sunday. He's actually speaking at our Bible school Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday on the topic, the Sermon on the Mount, which I believe is one of his best subjects. And if you want to come along to that, you're very welcome. It's free. You just turn up at Summit House 9 o'clock tomorrow and sign in and you can be part of that if you, if you have some time. And he's going to be with us um, on the last of these series on the province of providence of God. It's all there in the Revival Times. And before I get into this introductory section, I've forgotten my book, I just want to recommend one of R.T. Kendall's thank you books to you. And it's his book, Study on the Life of Joseph. And it's one of his most famous and most popular books, God Meant It for Good. And we have copies of those priced $6.99. This is definitely, you know, if I was to think of a top 20 books list that you should read, this would definitely be on it. It's had an incredible impact in many people's lives, especially when people find themselves in situations and they think, I just don't know how this happened to me. I just don't see God's hand in this. I don't understand what's going on. And when you're in the midst of that, that book and that story of Joseph will help you. And although I haven't asked him, and he can teach on whatever he wants on providence, I'm hoping he might do a little case study on the providence of God in Joseph's life. Um, because, uh, yeah, okay. So I'm going to speak today on the providence of God. This is an introductory session for you today. And the reason that we're teaching on the providence of God is because the providence of God is almost a forgotten doctrine in the Christian church today. I mean, I don't know. I won't ask for your hands. Hand, well, maybe I will. How many people could give me a basic definition of what we mean when we're talking about the providence of God? Just wave at me. Okay, we got one, two, half a hand, half a hand. So it, 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 it's not so much a forgotten doctrine as a, as a doctrine not known. And that's why I'm really glad that you're here today. This is, I don't know if you're allowed to have favorite doctrines, but this is my favorite teaching of the Bible. It's my favorite teaching of the Bible. And when we're talking about the providence of God, what we're talking about is the fact that God provides and cares and guides for all things. In fact, if, if, a shorthand, if you want to remember what the providence of God is, just remember in the word providence, there is the word provide. This is how God provides for his creation, cares for his creation, preserves his creation, but also governs and guides his creation. Um, I think of a couple of key scriptures just in introduction. Romans 8, verse 28, speaks about the providence of God when it says, Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, that's an amazing statement. That is what we're talking about when we're talking about the providence of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things, not some things, not some things, but all things work together for good, all things. Even the bad things we go through, for those that love God, even the bad things will work together and bring good in the end. What a staggering statement that um, we find in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. Again, an introductory scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him, 
we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing is beyond his control. All things, in the end, God will work all things to bring about his will. Now, the providence of God, this idea of God providing, uh, providing and sustaining and guiding and governing all things is a forgotten doctrine, yet it wasn't always a forgotten doctrine. You only have to go about 150 years ago into the great Victorian era, and especially if you were to go over the Atlantic to the United States of America, everybody understood the providence of God. The providence of God was people's favorite word. Uh, They would name their daughters Providence. Uh, They would name uh, areas and towns Providence. We think of Rhode Island in the United States of America. The capital of Rhode Island is Providence, which is in Providence County, which is at the uh, head of the Providence River. Providence. Providence is that you have a total trust that God is in control of all things, whatever happens, good or bad, and in the end, it will work according to his will. And so people in those days, they would face things with the knowledge that God is in control, especially when it looked like he wasn't. This is where this Bible truth really comes into its own. When everything's going wonderfully, we can say, oh, praise the Lord, you know, thank you, Lord, what a blessing. But what do we do when everything seems to be out of control or when we have fear about the future or things hit us? Is God still in control? Is he as much in control of the bad days as well as the good days? Well, the people would say yes. And it was amazing how the providence of God gave courage to those that believed in it. During the American Civil War, Christians on both sides Uh, blues and greys, north and south, Christians on both sides trusted themselves to the providence of God. When they went out to battle, they didn't go out thinking, God has no idea what's going to happen. I I have no idea what's going to happen. They went out, although they didn't know what was going to happen, they say, I trust myself in the providence of God. If, if, If I don't end the day alive, in the end... It might not be God firing the bullet that hits me, but in the end, it's not beyond his control. There'll be purpose in it, even if I don't understand it. If they suffered loss, if someone died at a young age, remember in those days, uh, families would have relatively large numbers of children, and one of the reasons was because there was such a high infant mortality. One of the ways that the families dealt with this is that when the child went and they suffered such loss, although they grieved as much as anyone, they didn't grieve without hope. They said, you know, in the end, Lord, you give and you take away. There are purposes that you have that we can't quite see yet. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I mentioned this in one of the services last week, and I often mention it, Westminster Shorter Catechism was a Puritan teaching document for new believers and for children. And what this was, was to make sure that the new believers or the children that you were bringing up in Christian education, that they would have an understanding of the basic doctrines of the church. 
I often mention the first question that's asked. It'd be a series of questions, and you would learn the question, and you would also learn the answer. The first question in this teaching document for new believers is, what is the chief purpose of mankind, or what is the chief end of man? The answer being, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we're here. We're here to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. A wonderful, succinct statement. But later on, when it comes to the providence of God in this New Believers teaching document, it says, what are God's work of providence? And the answer is, God's work of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all of his creatures. He preserves, sustains, guides all things in creation. Remember, provide is in the heart of the word providence. So let's look at some examples of what we mean when we talk about the providence of God, recognizing the guiding and providing hand of God in the world. Well, when we go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the book of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, speaking about Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and here it comes, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now that word uphold in the Greek, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, is pharaoh, P-H-E-R-O. And that pharaoh, upholds, means to carry, to bear. And so this word was used in the uh, story of the men that carried the paralyzed man to Jesus. What did they do? They upheld him, they carried him, they bared him. They used the Greek word pharaoh. So this is about continually carrying. And so in this word we find that Jesus upholds the universe. He carries, upholds, bears the universe by the word of his power. Why is that important? It means that moment by moment, God is sustaining the world that we're living in. Remember what I said? He's not like a clock maker. He doesn't make a clock, wind it up, walk away, and let it tick on under its own power. That is not what the Bible teaches. On the contrary, it says that God, Christ, is constantly, daily, carrying the whole universe, upholding it, bearing it, sustaining it, looking after it, preserving it moment by moment. In other words, if, and he won't, but if for one moment, one split second in time, God should step back from upholding the whole of the universe, it would totally disintegrate into nothing. God is intimately involved with the whole universe. He is upholding it. We see this also in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. In him, Christ, all things hold together. 
In other words, everything is being held together in him. If Jesus should step back one moment, withdraw his power from one mo- for one moment, the only thing left, everything would disintegrate, and the only, the only thing that would be left would be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of the created order would simply disappear. You know, this is important because straight away we're, we're realizing, wow, God is totally upholding, carrying, bearing, moment by moment, the whole universe. Wow, that shows how intimately involved he is in the created order. Sometimes people say, or sometimes people teach, that God is transcendent. In other words, he he is totally other than this whole creation. And And that's true, he is God and we are creation. But the idea that God is sat somewhere up there in heaven with very little interest in what's going on in the universe he created is totally and utterly and absolutely wrong. He is intimately involved in everything. He is intimately involved in the great galaxies as they move around. But he is just as intimately involved in the microscopic cell. Just as involved upholding the great mighty galaxies and upholding the tiny miniature cells and giving life and sustenance for them all. Acts chapter 17, 28, Acts 17, 28. In him we live and move and have our being. And when Paul was preaching that, he was speaking to the Greeks, the Gentiles. He wasn't just saying Christians in him we live and have our being, but everybody has their being in him. What does that mean? It means without him, you have no being. Without him, you don't live. He is totally and utterly, I mean, you see the picture they put up behind me, and it's like he's got the whole world in his hands. I think that is just, that that is pictorially just says everything that we're trying to say. But not just the whole world, but the whole universe is in his hands. You take away his hands, the whole thing dissolves or or, or ceases to exist. I love the prayer of Ezra the priest in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. You are the Lord. You alone have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve All of them. You see, again, you've got that picture of God sustaining moment by moment, preserving the whole of the universe. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. The heavens and earth that now exist are being kept until the day of judgment. 2 Peter 3, 7. So in other words, when that judgment comes and when Jesus returns and and when the right time comes and uh, we have a new heavens and a new earth, Well, at that time, the old heavens and the old earth will be burnt up by fire. It's going to be an amazing thing to see. But until that time, it says God keeps the universe going. You don't have to worry about the sky falling down on your head like that little chicken story. Because the sky's not going to fall down on your head. And even if it did, if it did, it would be God's ultimate will for for your good. You hear what I'm saying? This is going to breed confidence in our lives, this type of teaching. Providence is the basis for science and technology. We're talking about God sustaining and and everything. God creates and sustains a universe that acts 
in a predictable way. Thank God for all the laws of physics. Thank God for all the principles of science that we can see. Thank God for the principle of gravity. Because if the principle of gravity on Earth should suddenly be switched off, it's all gone pear-shaped, hasn't it? Thank God there's just enough gravity. I was thinking of this yesterday when I was planning. Thank God there's just enough gravity to keep a water in a cup. If there's just a fraction less, the water would just fly up. Thank God there's just enough gravity to keep a light person like myself still just on. Sometimes I think because I'm so light, I'm about to fly off. But no, there's just enough gravity. Just imagine, it's a little less gravity. And we'd all be soaring into heaven. You know what I'm saying? The universe is so finely tuned. Finely tuned. The gravity that keeps us on earth. The gravity that keeps the moon going around us. If the moon was a little too far or a little too close, the, the tides would be all over the place. We wouldn't be able to exist. Yet it's in just the right place and thank God that there's a, a, a stable gravity. Thank God for the gravity, gravitational pull of the sun. And thank God that the earth is just at the right position. Relatively further away, it would be too cold for life. Relatively uh, uh, fractionally uh, nearer the sun, we take these things for granted. But it's these laws of physics and principles that God has given to us that allow us to wake up every day with the confidence that there's going to be gravity, that, 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 that the principles of physics and chemistry and the principles of biology and all the sciences. But you know what? Many people, they look at those and they say, well, there's nothing behind it. You're wrong. You're wrong. God upholds all these principles. God gave us these principles. And at one level, we look at these natural principles, but believe me, God... If he took his hand away, these principles would just, would just no longer operate. No longer operate. They would no longer be sustained. God is invisibly behind them. And the fact that the, these scientific laws are so tuned and, and, and so amazing points to the fact that there's a God behind them. And that's why God can suspend these principles whenever he wants. I don't know what the big surprise is that Jesus can walk across the water that he can sus suspend a principle that he's always upholding. Remember, he didn't make all these scientific principles like a clock, wind them up and set them off, and think, oh no, the law of gravity. Oh, not even I, God, can suspend the law of gravity. Well, he did. He, he went up, he ascended into heaven. One day when he returns, we're going to be raptured. No, the God who every moment of the day continues these scientific principles to help us have order in our mind and understanding of the world, and we take these things for granted. But the God who gives us scientific principles can suspend them at any moment. He can take some bread and fish and pow, multiply them. It's no, 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 it's no harder for God to do a miracle than it is for him to keep the principles in order. And as I've taught from the Bible, if he was to one second take his hands off these natural principles and laws, those laws would just spiral into unruliness. I tell you what, when God even, when God takes a little bit of his hand off something, it immediately begins to deteriorate. How do you know that, how many of you know that since the fall of the world, the world was not created like this? 
The world was created, and when God created, he said, this is very good. There was no decay, no deterioration, no dying, no sickness, no crying. It was all good, all right. But since the fall, humankind and, and the world is in a state of fallenness, we have decay and deterioration. I mean, I don't know how many centuries before we exhaust this world's minerals. Do you know what I'm saying? We, we, we are degenerating. We are decaying. We are not being renewed in this physical universe. And that's a picture of the fallenness, but thank God, God is still sustaining this incredible creation, even in its fallen state. Which leads me on to natural occurrences. God, scripture says that God even causes these natural occurrences to take place, like snow and rain. If we go to uh, the book of Job, chapter 37. And verse 6. We'll start from verse 5. Job 37, 5. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the, to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, the rain, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man, and all men whom he made may know it. And the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From, its chamber, from his chamber comes the whirlwind, and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around, around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. So we see in this that God is behind the snow and the rain and the thunder and the lightning. Again, you might say, well, we understand uh, the laws of nature. We understand how clouds form. We understand how lightning comes. It's not some angel throwing a lightning bolt down. This isn't the Middle Ages. Correct. But without God, the sustainer and provider, none of these things would take place. The Bible says he is behind all of it, guiding it. Oh, otherwise, why would we cry out to him in times of famine? Why would he cry out to him in times of drought, asking him to work his providential and sovereign hand and, and bring relief from floods or things that have taken place? Psalm 135, verse 6. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on the earth, in the seas and all the deeps. In other words, he's active. He's active in creation. Guess what? He does whatever he wants. Whatever he wants. Even the deep seas. He's not standing back, having nothing to do with it. He's not thinking, oh, I, can't, I don't have permission to interact with my creation. On the contrary. Psalm 135, next verse, verse 7. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Matthew 5, verse 45, Jesus speaking about God's care for everyone, believer and unbeliever. Matthew 5, verse 45, 
God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God's common grace. It's common for everyone, this common grace, because the sun rises on the believer and the unbeliever, the good and the bad, and the rain falls. But Jesus isn't saying, well, you know, that's just whatever nature does. Jesus, Jesus does not see the natural course of nature, rain, or even the sun every morning. Jesus doesn't say, well, that's got nothing to do with God. He set that in motion. No, every time the sun rises in the morning, if I can put it like that, God's behind it. You say, well, that's not the case. It's the world. It's, it's revolving, and the world is revolving, and we have night, and we have day. Correct. Who, who allows the world to revolve day and night? Who keeps all these, um, these, these tensions, all these things in tension? Who keeps these things going? Who keeps the world spinning? Who's behind all the laws and all the universal situations that we find in? I've already mentioned the moon next to the earth. And what if there was no moon? Why do we have an earth and a moon? Would we, what would it be like if there was no moon? The sun, all these things that we take for granted because we know no different, God has, is delicately keeping them empowered and in order. So although we thank God that we ha understand and appreciate the natural ways that things, that, that, that things are and, and how, you know, the laws of gravity, like I've said, in no way does it say that God is not involved on the contrary. In fact, he can stop the sun if he wants, can't he? Do you remember with Joshua? He kept the sun going. He said, how did he do that? He's God. It's just as easy for him to break the laws of nature as it is to uphold them because it's all done by his power. Also, the animals. God feeds the animals. He provides. It's his providence. Provides. In his providence, he looks after the animals. Psalm 104, verse 27. Psalm 104, 27. The animals, these all look to you. You give them their food in season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. All the food that animals eat. Yes, we understand how the grass grows and, all, and the fruit comes, but in the end, God is behind it and we can give thanks for him. Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus echoes this view of his own father. Matthew 6, 26, look at the birds of the air, your heavenly father feeds them. Here again, can you see? God is involved. God, in his providence, is providing. God is giving. And if he feeds the birds, then we can go to him and ask him to feed us. Matthew, uh, I mean, how do we feed ourselves? Well, hopefully we're blessed enough to have a job where we get a salary. And so, no, I God doesn't feed me. I, I earn my money. Well, you've got a lot to learn about God if you, if you really think that you are the originator of your own provision. God takes his hand away in an instant. There would be no provision for anybody. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Listen to this, Jesus again. Not one sparrow will fall to the ground without your Father's will. Not one, nothing can die without his permission. Nothing can go without his permission. Nothing. 
He is totally and utterly in control of all things. Which brings me to the next point in this introduction on the providence of God. There is no random or chance acts when it comes to God. To us, we say that's, t- that's chance, that's random. Nothing's random. Nothing's chance in God's eyes. Proverbs 16, verse 33. Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's the Lord that knows the result. The lot is cast. In other words, you can roll the dice, you can flip the coin, but God knows what the result will be. God knows the lottery results on Wednesday. Do you know that? Because I asked him, they wouldn't tell me. Because you see, God knows the lottery results. He knows who's going to get them. For me, in my perspective, it's totally random and chance. I have no idea. But God knows all these things. God's not there during that lotto thing, watching, going, oh, I wonder what numbers are... Oh, six, well, I never would have thought of that. Thirteen, well, I never would have thought of that. There's no chance or random before God. And even to a Bible believer, an Israelite, to to them, chance meant what was unexpected to humans, not what is random. The the Bible believers did not believe in random events. It might be random to us. We, We don't know what it is. It's unexpected. We can't predict it. But God knows everything. This is important because nothing happens that is ultimately beyond his control. God understands. God knows everything. I've mentioned we have natural natural explanations for rain and grass growing and the weather, yet God upholds and empowers all these things. God is constantly behind the scenes, working invisibly, directing, and providentially caring for all things. And we call this primary causation. God is, in one sense, the primary cause of all things. The primary cause in all things. Nothing takes him by surprise. He works, remember those scriptures at the beginning? He works all things according to his power of his will. And Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work for good and according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In the end, everything, even, the, even evil, can be used to God to further his, his, his will. But that's the primary cause. That's God behind and above and sustaining all things. But then we have a secondary cause, and this is, this is important, this. And what is this? This is our choices and creature choices. The Bible doesn't say that we're all robots pre-programmed, to do some pre-programmed life. The Bible's not like that at all. Because God is constantly looking at how people respond to him and the choices that we make on a daily basis are real. And God holds us accountable for our choices. So although God is in control of all things, yet at the same time, his creatures also have choice. You say, well, how does that work? It's a mystery. It's God, but it's what the Bible says, that God is totally in control, but human beings are held responsible 
totally for all their decisions and actions. We are, we, I'll come to some of those exa- examples um, in, a, in a moment. Um, look at the nations, for example. You know, the nations arise and the nations fall, but not apart from God. Job chapter 12, verse 23. Job 12, 23. God makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and others he leads them away. God makes nations great and he destroys them. Psalm 22, verse 28. Dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Acts 17, verse 26. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 34. Daniel 4, 34. At the end of of my days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honoured him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can say to him, what have you done? And so we see that nations that rise and nations that fall, all these things. And we know, we know if, you, if you've ever read history, if you've looked at history and you read history and you, you see the nations that arise and you see the nations that fall and you, you see the great warriors that rise and, and you think of people like Napoleon or, or recently that um, dictator Adolf Hitler and you look, you look at these people good, bad, whatever they are. And you say, well, you know, who, who could stop these people? Who could stop these nations? Well, God is ultimately in control. In the Old Testament, sometimes God raises up a, a nation with strength to punish Israel because of their sins. He raised up Cyrus, didn't he? To bring the children of Israel back from exile. He raised them up specifically to do that. So at the one level, you have the human visible sphere of operation where humans are making decisions, doing this, doing that, and that's real, friends. The Bible says that is real. But behind this, you have God exercising his providence so that these things ultimately fulfill his will. It's interesting how sometimes these dictators and tyrants, it looks like they're about to take the whole world, and it's like God says that's far far enough. That's far enough. And when we talk about providence, often we speak about special acts of God. So the British people were in church for a national day of thanksgiving, thanking the providence of God when Hitler's tanks stopped at the coast just long enough for the British expeditionary army and some French to get on some small boats and get across. It was crazy. He should never have done that. The Fuhrer said an order, stop, just long enough. And you can look at that. 
And Christians who were praying, Christians were praying during that period. They said, that is God. God intervened. And God said, that far enough you can go, but, he, but, but no longer. And what often seems like a nation that will never be defeated in a few moments. You remember, we were all, the Christians were praying for decades about the Iron Curtain. And who'd have thought the Soviet Union would ever fall down? But it did. And it seemed a few moments, bang, 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 bang. Now, I'm going to be going into that in a lot more detail next week when we look at God's guiding hand in history in the church. We see that Jesus came just at the right time. And when Jesus came, God had, had brought history to a place that was just right for his son to come in. And we'll, we'll look at these things. This should give us confidence. Because when history is going well, when, when the church is thriving and God's blessing is on, our, on whatever nation that we come from and we're rejoicing, we can say, oh, I see God is blessing this nation. But when things are difficult, when things are hard, it's not that God has stepped away. He is still behind all things, shaping things. This is important for us because this means, and we'll look at this again in this series, that God's providence affects all aspects of our lives. For, for example, each day Jesus says, remember that you're dependent on God to give you food. Give us this day our daily bread. God plans our days before we were born. David affirms in Psalm 139, verse 16, in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Psalm 136. See, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but God does. We don't know how long we're going to be on this earth, but you know what? God does. And no one can snatch away a day or add a day to his life. God is in control. Before I formed you, Jeremiah... In the womb I knew you, and before you were born I consecrated you and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. A man's steps are ordered by the Lord. Proverbs 20, verse 24. Proverbs 20, 24. Proverbs 16, 9. A man's mind plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16, 1. The plans of the mind belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Success and failure come from God, for we read, for not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. So Mary can, can say in Luke 1 verse 52, he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. God is in control. He influences rulers and their decisions. Proverbs 21, verse 1. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he will. So, in introduction, when we speak about the providence of God, we're talking about the fact that in the end, God is in control. We'll unpackage this over the next few weeks because there's some questions that we need to answer like, well, what about evil? What about evil? Well, one of the best examples is 
the story of Job. I mean, Satan sought to destroy him. That was evil. Destroy him with sickness, attack his children. Satan was doing the evil. But do you remember that God was ultimately in control? God said, this far you can go, but you can't take his life. And throughout that whole time, Job didn't understand what was going on. And his wife said, curse God and die. But he was saying, though he slay me, I will trust him. That is a beautiful confession of the providence of God. No, even though it's all going wrong, wife, even though it's all going terrible, I will still trust him. Though he slay me, this isn't the end. God is working. This isn't the end. Something will come out of this. I don't know what. I can't see it. But something will come out of this. He gives and takes away. It's not whether I've been given or whether I've had it taken away. I'm not focusing on what I've been given or what's been taken away. I'm focusing on he that gives and takes away. I'm trusting in his providence. I'm trusting in him. And then we see at the end of Job, don't we? What, that when we look back on it, and here we are thousands of years later preaching on it, it was worth it. It was worth it. The devil meant it for bad, but God meant it for good. This book on Joseph, if you follow Joseph's life, most of his life, where was God? I mean, God turns up at the beginning and gives him some incredible dreams. Your family's going to bow down to you, all this type of thing. And the very dream that God gives him seems to be working against his whole life. If only he hadn't had that dream, his brothers would not have got jealous of him. He wouldn't have got a little bit ahead of his station. He was a young lad. He didn't know what to do with such high vision, and he boasted about it and didn't know how to treat this revelation. And you know the story of, of, of Joseph, left for dead. Where was God when he was left for dead? Begins to get back on his feet in Potiphar's house, wrongly accused and thrown into prison does well in prison and has a prophecy for people that are about to be restored before Pharaoh and they forget him. I mean, it's a catalogue of where is God? Where is God? Where is God? Why have you done this, God? Don't understand what's going on, Lord. Can't understand. You promised me. And, and most of his... But he didn't realise that every negative thing that happened to him was part of God's plan to produce the final result that would bring deliverance to his people. Everything. All those negative things. God didn't do those negative things. The brothers did that. When he finally meets the brothers, and he says to them, he says, you meant it for evil. God didn't mean it for evil, did he? When you threw me in that pit and sold me, you meant it for evil. It was an evil, wicked thing to do, and evil was in your heart, and God knows that that was evil. And you're not, you're not getting away with that. But God meant it for good. I mean, think about the most wicked act that ever took place on the earth. When humankind crucified the Son of God. That's the most wicked act. When the Lamb of God, the pure Lamb of God, the Son of God, was crucified. It was the most sinful act that has ever taken place on earth to crucify God's own son and those that crucified him meant it for bad but God meant it for good we'll unpackage this in the next few weeks but this is important 
Because unless you have an understanding of the providence of God, then you, you will not know how to cope with things that take place on the earth or even can take place in your life. And tragedy comes. Tragedy came into my sphere of life a week last Saturday when someone so close to us, she's almost like family, was two weeks away from bearing a child and the child died in the womb. And while we were having our Saturday afternoon pastoral teaching, the news came to me and I was shocked. I, I was thrown. How could this happen? Why would this happen? What can happen? How does this... Just, you know, when these things come and others, you just, you, you, you just can't see what's, what is happening. And, and I'm in my car on the way home and I want to pray for the situation. I got no words to pray. And I'm saying, Holy Spirit. And I'm thinking, what, what can the Holy... I'm literally thinking it. What, I'm thinking, Holy Spirit, bring comfort. I'm thinking, how can you bring comfort to something that's just happened to somebody? Like, how can you... I'm thinking, you know what, a few words from the Bible, he is the comforter. I'm thinking, how can you... She is a Christian... I'm thinking, how can, how can she be comforted? So I'm praying, because I don't see how it can happen. I'm saying, God, I don't know how you can mitigate this help here, but I'm just praying that you will comfort her. And then I'm speaking in tongues all the way home. And then I find out a couple of days later that the time that I was speaking in tongues, a major miraculous event took place that alleviated a lot that was going on. No, the child didn't come back, but, but God came in and and, and did something that made the situation a lot better and a lot easier than it, than, it was, than it was headed to be. You see, God uses our prayer. He uses it. And, but the one thing, we got, we're going to do the cremation later on this week. And although it's hard and it's difficult, you see, this, I say, I, I trust you, God. Because I know where that child is, you know what I'm saying? It's middle of the night, I'm praying. I'm saying, I'm praying, and it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, God, I understand that you're in control of all things, and if you want the child with you, that's fine, and everything, and I, I trust you. you. You know the end from the beginning. One day, there'll be no more tears, no more dying, and, uh, and everything, but Lord, I can't see what's going on here. And God spoke to me, and he said, where is the child? And I said, the child is in your arms. I didn't get anything else. So in other words, hush, Bruce, where is the child? The child is in your arms. Is there a better place to be than in the arms of God? Is there a better place to be in the arms of God? And so we, get, we find ourselves in life, and we have to see different perspectives. We don't ignore what's going on. We don't, on the, on the, on, on the contrary, but at the same time, we know. You see, when people die in the Christian faith, they don't die without hope. And already I'm praying and seeing God's hand even in this. Do you know what I'm saying? Why? Because this is not purposeless. If I was an atheist, I'd say, well, that's it. Child died. Child doesn't go anywhere. When you die, you go nothing. That's it. There's no purpose in it. That's the way life is. We are evolutionary machines that only exist to propagate. There's no ultimate truth, no ultimate meaning, no afterlife. Very few atheists have actually the courage to, understand, to look at their views in the mirror of reality and follow them through to their logical conclusion. 
Because the log logical conclusion is despair, meaningless, nothingness. If you are an atheist, you are deceiving yourself. You take meaning from this life, yet you say there is no life. You are deceived. Deceived. But I'm telling you, that though we hurt as, many, as much as any other people, there is purpose. There is purpose to this. I'm already seeing glimpses of God's intervention, glimpses of God's comfort, seeing the way that the responses to this situation, glimpses, not fully, but glimpses. Why? Because I'm, I'm awake to God's providence. I'm thinking, there is meaning here, even though it seems meaningless and I'm awake and aware and looking for it and going through the troubles. Some of the greatest troubles of my life, when I went through them, things that have happened, some of the greatest troubles, at the time I had no idea how they could be redeemed. But some of those greatest troubles, I can now stand and say to you, they made me who I am today. And though I would never in a billion years ever want to go through them again, Thank you, Lord, that I went through them because I see the purpose and the grace and the majesty now that I couldn't see then. And we've all got this in our lives. And what we need to do, do is build a casebook of the providence of God. Things that you don't understand, things that don't... Look, keep trusting the Lord. Not everything is explained this side of heaven. You hear what I'm saying? God will show us, there'll be times when we'll say, do you know what? The devil meant it for evil, but now I see how God meant it for good. Do you know that person and those people? They meant to destroy me. They meant to pull me down. They were out to destroy me. And at the time, I didn't understand what was happening because it looked like they were destroying me. But 10 years later, I can say, it was all God's plan. That's faith. I mean, this is mature Faith. This is why James can say, count it all joys when you face trials. Why? Because it's God's purpose for you. This means that whatever we face, and God won't ever put us in a situation where we can't handle it with him. Can't handle it without him. God, you will, I promise you, you will never face anything in your life that you can't handle with God. And that God doesn't have an ultimate purpose for, even if you or I can't explain it at the time. Now, you, may you will handle things in your life that I couldn't handle. I will handle things in my life that you couldn't handle. This is the point. Don't fear. Don't look at somebody else and say, oh, look what's happened to them. Look what they went through and start to fear and say, I couldn't handle it. Don't worry. If you can't handle it, it won't come. If you can't handle it, it won't come. God will only give you. God is so balanced in what he does, purposeful, so intimate and intricate in his involvement with all things that happen, he knows exactly what's good for you. He knows exactly what you can bear. And all of it will ultimately, in this life or the life to come, all of it, everything, will have divine, perfect purpose. Thank you. There's no fear. Providence, his hands, all right? There's no fear. No fear. Nothing can come against you that you can't overcome. Nothing can come into your life, as Morris Sorello's phrase come into my head. Nothing can come into your life, no persecution, no oppression, no circumstance can come into your life that can 
defeat you. Why? Because the providence of God. Nothing happens by chance. God is in control. And even evil cannot defeat you because it's not beyond his control. As we step into this doctrine, I pray that you will love this doctrine as much as I love this teaching of Scripture because it is behind and, and the strength of our lives as we go forward to do the things that God has called us to do. Amen? God bless you. Don't forget, if you want a case study of the providence of God, I really recommend that you get hold of that book, God Meant It for Good by R.T. Kendall. And then you will see some of the principles we're doing in this series uh, in a life of a particular individual in the Bible.